Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Twin Movies. I'm Ben Phelps, and I'm joined by my regular buddy in banter, Gabriel Dowrick Esquire. Every year, Hollywood releases two movies based on the same idea. So we ask the big question, which movie did it better? Today, we'll be reviewing two classic twin movies about a young creative British man of South Asian heritage who discovers success through iconic music. It's Yesterday versus Blinded by the Light. Let the tunes begin. So let's kick off this episode with an overview of these twin movies and our flashback to our first encounter with them. On the 28th of June, 2019, Yesterday was released. Here's its IMDb synopsis. A struggling musician realises he's the only person on earth who can remember the Beatles after waking up an alternative timeline where they never existed. So Gabe... Did you originally catch Yesterday when it was released at the cinema, and how was that experience? Ben, I didn't, so I cannot speak to the experience of seeing Yesterday in a cinema. I actually watched this movie just a few days ago, at home, on demand. Actually, no, on Amazon Prime. Is that on demand? Does Amazon count count as on demand? I don't know. But uh, I watched it in the comfort of my home while in quarantine lockdown. I'm surprised to hear that because you are a big fan of Danny Boyle. So for you to not catch it at the cinema almost seems sacrilegious. Yes, but I'm not a huge fan, and this will be incredibly controversial when we get to it, of the Beatles and twee shit like this movie. So I did not catch it at the movies for that reason. Uh, There are people out there who love Richard Curtis, and certainly there is a Richard Curtis movie or two that I like about time. But uh, on the whole, I would kind of avoid this sort of thing or at least choose an alternative uh, film. So that's why I didn't see it. What about you? I caught this one on the plane. I'm a huge Danny Boyle fan, but the pitch of this and the subsequent reviews upon release just were enough to galvanise me to get to the movies So I saw this back-to-back on a plane trip between Australia and the UK with Blinded by the Lights. I saw these films one after the other, which was fantastic timing. And it wasn't on the big screen. It was on a decent-sized LCD screen. And You can tell. You you were flying first class, weren't you, Ben? That's right. I always fly. In fact, I was the pilot. Oh, really? And you watched the films while, while landing the plane during a tornado. That's what autopilot is for. Oh, beautiful. All right. Let's jump to Blinded by the Light. Later, on the 16th of August 2019, Blinded by the Light was released, and here's its IMDb synopsis. In England in 1987, a teenager from an Asian family learns to live his life, understand his family, and find his own voice through the music of American rock star Bruce Springsteen. All right, Gabe, I know you're a huge Boss fan. Talk me through when and how you first watched Blinded by the Light. I am a huge uh, Springsteen fan, love The Boss, um, which makes it very strange that for some reason I didn't see this at the movies. I know I wanted to. I know I wanted to, but something must have just, I don't know, come up or there must have been other stuff on or or something. And I, I, I kind of regret not seeing it at the movies because, yeah, I mean, I'll see sort of anything Springsteen related at the at the pictures. But no, I actually watched this movie not but three hours ago. So it's very fresh in my mind. Yeah, this is a bit of a secret behind every episode of Twin Movies. It's those times when we have to try and cram in a viewing 
just before we pod, which I must say does at least make our reaction to the particular film very guttural and uh, live, so to speak. Well, especially when they came out in 2019. Like, if, you know, if they're very recent movies, you know, if, if we're talking about a, you know, Deep Impact came out in 1998 or whatever, it's f- very easy to remember those times back in the yesteryears that we might have seen them. But, yeah, these are, these are very, very new films. They're, they're right of the moment. We are zeitgeist. That is what this podcast is all about, the zeitgeist. That's it. Now, I must say, I did watch both these films with spectacular noise-cancelling headphones. So, even though it's sacrilegious to watch many films on a small screen, the audio was fantastic. And we're talking about films based on the music of Bruce Springsteen and the Beatles. I was able to really enjoy that way. So, my experience wasn't in any way muted by being on the small screen because the sound was spectacular. Are you a big fan of either the Beatles or Bruce Springsteen, Ben? No. All right, so, so I- you're waiting for like the, the man whose life is changed by the music of Yo-Yo Ma. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, exactly. Right, okay. Yeah, 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 blur. Oh, really? Blur? Uh, you know how everyone basically has an association with music in their teens, their 20s, and as they get older- They still listen to the same music and they might discover new music along the way. But because that music was seminal to many first experiences, first kiss, first, you know, incidents of sex, first time you drove a car, went camping, all those sorts of things that happen in in your teen years and 20s, then a lot of the music I like was around, I guess, sort of the early 90s through the late 90s, basically. So a lot of Australian rock bands... Britpop, some of that kind of pivotal Beastie Boys stuff in the US, you know, California Love by Tupac. What? <laughs> you know, California Love. Yeah, no, no, I know, I know the song, dude. I can sing the whole song if you like. Uh, well, why don't you do that at the end of this recording and we'll just put that online as like a little special extra. <laughs> or alternatively, I'll learn the Snoop Dogg part and we'll do the whole thing next time together, maybe. So, but you want the movie set just after Blinded by the, the Light in, you know, 1990, 1995. Although there's no real class struggle there or anything because by that time, Tony Blair had come in and so on. Yeah, exactly. Although right. if you were fair-headed with ginger hair, you would have felt you would have identified with Rick Astley. These were tough times. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. But we 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 we've, we've set up that you're not the biggest uh, Beatles or Springsteen fan. No. Okay. All right. So so I I'm not a huge Beatles fan, you know. Obviously we both can appreciate the place the Beatles play in the history of music. They were they were icons. Exactly. But I'm a huge Boss fan, so... All right, well, before we get to a review of these films, let's just do a quick little Hollywood shallow dive. Let's start with Yesterday. This film actually began as an original screenplay called Cover Version by writers Jack Barth and actor-director Mackenzie Crook. And Crook was going to then actually direct the film, but he dropped out later on. And so the story was pitched to writer-director Richard Curtis. He of Love Actually, Four Weddings and a Funeral... About Time, a film that you and I both love. Oh, yeah. And Curtis loved the idea, but, you know, being Richard Curtis, wanted to write it in his own voice. So he did that. Then they brought in Danny Boyle, and it was going to be a musical comedy originally set in the 60s or 70s, centering on a struggling musician who thinks he's the only one who can remember the Beatles. But then they changed the era to modernise it later on, hence why you had characters like Ed Sheeran and 
turning up. So that's sort of how it got off the ground. Now, jumping to Blinded by the Light, this one was actually based on a book. It's based on a book called Greetings from Burberry Park, Race, Religion and Rock and Roll. So it's basically an autobiographical film set in the town of Luton in 1987, Thatcherite Britain. So arguably, Blinded by the Light came first in being a book earlier on. But they basically seem to have more or less started as very independent, unrelated productions. And it's again, like in Hollywood history, or in this case, British cinema history, just totally serendipitous. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because these movies are similar in some ways and then very different in in others. Perhaps they're like malformed twins. (laughs) Wow, that's the uh, most um, unflattering description (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Let's actually jump up. Let's jump to a review of both these films, shall we? Sounds good. Let's start with yesterday. Did you like it? What worked for you about this film? And what didn't float your boat? It's interesting. You talked, what did you say about Danny Boyle earlier? That he's one of our faves, but also, you know, we've discussed a lot before about how interesting his career is in terms of the, the scope and tone and style of all of the projects he does. I mean, genres, I think he's touched on almost every genre. Uh, I, was, I, was, I was actually about to say, except for horror, and then, of course, he's done 28 Days Later. Yeah, that's right. He's done an incredible range of films. Yeah, and this is probably my least favourite. Oh. <laughs> Sorry, Danny. I don't know. There's nothing wrong with this movie. It was fairly pleasant. I thought Haimish Patel was very good in the lead role. Uh, I, I just kind of... I don't know, I just didn't connect with it. And there was one or two scenes that I thought were like cringeworthingly embarrassing, particularly the scene where he goes and meets old John Lennon. So unfortunately for me, yeah, this movie didn't quite, uh, didn't land with me, didn't didn't emotionally resonate. And I, I think we'll talk about it a bit later, but God, I have a problem where someone gets like an incredible gift or some massive, massive amount of power and then decides to trade it all away for like their first girlfriend. Big mistake. Yeah, this film falls in that category where the girlfriend doesn't really have much of an active role. She's essentially lusting for him and doesn't have as much agency, as much autonomy as you'd like in a female character in 2019. Look, as an overall comment, I enjoyed this film in a pleasant way. I think the weakness is in the script. Danny Boyle, to me, has a great capacity to often elevate scripts that, at first glance, aren't the strongest, and he casts very well. And he's very happy to dive into the toolbox of soundtracks, interesting editing, uh, cinematography with his crew to try and lift a script beyond what it is. And I just didn't think it was very strong. I think for me in this film, and maybe this reflects the backstory too, I didn't mention this earlier, but Danny Boyle was attached to the latest James Bond film to come out, which is No Time to Die. And he and John Hodges, his screenwriter from Trainspotting, were working on that film for quite a while. And then they both left because of, quote, creative differences. And that's a real shame. We'll never get to see a Danny Boyle, James Bond film. But he then went on to change lanes quickly to Yesterday. Now, I'm not sure if it's because perhaps he wasn't attached to this film for longer and this was just a rush project after James Bond fell through, or perhaps the script just is what it 
is from the start. But here we've got a concept where it's about someone who has the capacity to ride the coattails of arguably the most famous band in history. And that concept doesn't really feel baked into the story. It feels like there are so many opportunities where they could explore the possibility as to if the Beatles didn't exist. And maybe it was just simply too complicated. The closest they get to that is an acknowledgement that the band Oasis in this world doesn't exist. And that's good, though, because to me that actually is a great acknowledgement where Oasis themselves have talked about how they were so influenced by the Beatles and that's been a compliment and criticism of that band since they came around in the uh, early 90s. And so that's like, to me, a great example of the halo effect or the ripple of the Beatles not existing. But that's basically it. Well, Coca-Cola, Harry Potter and cigarettes also don't exist. Randomly, right? Well, I mean, I don't know enough about the history of Coca-Cola the history of Harry Potter, or weirdly, the history of cigarettes. Like, did the the Beatles? How did the Beatles make cigarettes exist? Surely, smokes existed before and after them. I don't. I, I didn't get. I didn't understand that. I guess. I don't think there was any internal logic to the story as to why that was the case with Oasis and the fact that they didn't exist in this alternative timeline. That is directly connected to the Beatles, but I don't think cigarettes. Coke, and what else was it? Uh, Harry Potter. Harry Potter. I don't think there was any correlation there, which then means it just feels inconsistent. Like, either make it the fact that everything has to be connected to the Beatles in some way, which I would have thought would be kind of easier, but to then randomly drop other things out. I mean, Coke precedes the Beatles. Cigarettes precede the Beatles. There doesn't seem to be a direct connection, in which case this is just a different timeline where random things don't exist, which doesn't make much sense to me because then, well, I guess it just feels like a cop-out. It just feels like it's very convenient to have a little gag here and there where he can't drink a Coke, but for no good reason. Yeah, and also, like, you would think philosophically, if the Beatles hadn't existed, would there not have just been some other bands? Wouldn't there be hundreds of other bands he's never heard of that were huge? You know, I agree with you. It sort of feels like it takes the idea and only just layers it on the surface. And like, yeah, I don't, I don't want a whole bunch of fictional music from a band called, like, I don't know, the, what's a, fuck, I don't know. Well, hey, Ben, what's a funny name for a band that's not the Beatles that was the biggest band of all time? The Crickets. Sure, let's go with that. The Crickets. Um, yeah. Oh, look, check it out. The, the Crickets actually recorded Hey Jude, you know, based on the role of the individual in history or some sort of thing. But, but yeah, it never really scratches at the surface of what some of those ideas could be. Even like a butterfly effect type idea, like if that one thing hadn't happened, what else would be different? I, I think it's interesting that he chose the Beatles too because you're looking at a point further back in time. And this is basically connected to the old cliche of the Terminator movie time travel logic. The further you go back in time, arguably, the more you can affect the present because that butterfly effect becomes greater. In this case, Richard Curtis could have chosen a contemporary band or even even chosen a musician like Ed Sheenan. Sheeran. And Sheeran, sorry, Ed Sheeran. Sheeran. In which case, there'd be- I know you're a big fan, Ben. (laughs) Yeah, huge fan, obviously. And that would have had less of a ripple effect going forward. But I suppose Ed isn't as famous as the Beatles, so it makes sense to choose the biggest band of all time. No, and it also seems so so much of like some sort of lame, I don't know, hagiography thing being like, oh, what what if Ed Sheeran didn't exist? What if Post Malone didn't exist? You know, like, you can't call someone that new iconic, even if they've sold a fucking bucket load of albums. 
Yeah, yeah, I agree. I do give the film credit for casting a South Asian character in this role. That at least makes it more interesting. Can this guy rise above potential prejudice and take the music of four working class white guys from the middle of England and have the same success? That's interesting to me. Like, how much of music is about just the time in which it was sung and how it was heard in that ripple effect and the look and the style of the artist? It's an interesting concept. And I just don't think it basically took advantage enough of the concept. Yeah, and it's interesting. They sort of even brush past that by just assuming that any Beatles song, if written today, would also be a hit. And they do some jokes later, I guess, when he's trying to come up with the album title, you know, with the, like, you know, the marketing PR guys who are presented as knuckleheads. They probably are. And they can't decide on the – they think, you know, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band is a stupid name for an album. As if, oh, that would be a bad name for an album, but any of their songs would would break through regardless. And it's just like, I don't know. I'm sure the greatest song ever written has been written and sung and performed and it just didn't happen because it wasn't the right place in the right time. And I don't know. Yeah, this film sort of just assumes that because it was then, it would be now. And I just don't buy that. Yeah, I agree. And I also think it taps into the issue that many creatives face where you think what you're doing is right. In fact, in your heart, in the deepest part of your heart, you know what you're doing is the right execution of a creative idea. But in many art forms, particularly in movie making, you're fighting the system who's saying no. And there'll be like numerous producers or friends who are writers who critique your work or whatever criticizing. And often they're right, but often they're wrong. And that's the challenge of a creative to listen to objective criticism but still push ahead in a certain direction if they feel so strongly about it that they think they're right despite everyone saying that they're wrong. And if every creative listened to every piece of criticism, you'd never move forward, right? And I sort of feel in this film that's one of those things they could have explored more. So with the album, for example, pushing on a name for an album or a name for a song – He knows through his understanding of the Beatles that that name of that song, all those lyrics were considered to be successful, but perhaps he's experiencing the same challenges that the Beatles had in the first time where people are saying, it sounds silly. So I guess it adds a double resonance to the artistic challenge. Like how much do you listen to other people, even though you know you're you're right? In this case, he knows with an historical alternative timeline that he's definitely right. Yeah, like like maybe it would have been interesting to see them have to push the music of the Beatles into, you know, not necessarily other genres, but, you know, he's still just one guy with a guitar, but like, oh, yeah, what if there was some conflict around, I don't know, him having to put like trap beats behind um, behind Hey Jude or something and it being like, oh, yeah, maybe this works better for the current marketplace and, you know, probably being awful. But, yeah, I, I agree with you, man. There just wasn't enough push and pull, was there? Very surface. Very surface, but but I agree. Hamish Patel, like I said, I thought he was very good in the in the lead. I thought he's very charismatic. Yeah, he's a great actor. Like again, Danny Boyle has cast very well. I thought Lily James, despite having a you know pretty small role, I thought she was very charismatic on screen. Uh, I really enjoyed all of the actors. I must say though, Richard Curtis often has the same dynamic of friends. You see it in Notting Hill with all those wacky mates. And 
with this group of friends too, it felt the same. Like there's the wacky one, there's a serious one, there's a tall one, and so on and so on. <laughs> the tall one, yeah. Well, it's always the same. It always just feels like this sort of different versions of the same character combination. Mm. But what do you set up for our listeners who haven't seen this film? The scene where the character Jack, played by Himish Patel, goes to meet a boat builder <laughs> oh. and who that boat builder is. God. I mean, I guess it's a big spoiler. So, if you haven't seen the movie, I already spoiled it for you earlier anyway. But oh, yeah, it's just this. I just thought it was this cloyingly embarrassing scene. Anyway, uh, I'll, I'll, we'll set it up first before I just talk about how much I hated it. But So, he drives out to visit some sort of boat builder who's like this hermetic artist. And it's John Lennon, who was obviously, you know, was never in the Beatles, so he wasn't killed by David Mark Chapman, Mark David Chapman, fat Jared Leto, whoever, and has now been able to live a, a life, you know, where presumably he didn't commit domestic abuse or whatever. And uh, it's just awful. <laughs> I just hated it. I don't know, man. Did you find it a very moving scene? No, I didn't. Look, I liked the sentiment of it. So, the sentiment of the scene is that John Lennon essentially is living very happily. One might think if John Lennon, in an alternative timeline, didn't find the fame that he does in our timeline in real life, would he be frustrated? Like, would he be a frustrated creative who never broke out? And this film decides to say no, like he found happiness another way. Here's why... Being generous to the scene and the film, I find that potentially or somewhat uplifting. Yeah, tell me. Tell me. It feels like basically a polite way for a creative to feel good about themselves if they have been successful in their creative profession. It's basically like many other movies or TV shows where someone doesn't become a successful filmmaker or musician or author, but they have the love of their family or, you know, at least they have their health. And I get that because if you fail creatively, it's nice to know that other parts of your life, you succeeded. And there are many, many successful creatives out there who reach the top of their profession, but man, oh man, they had really messed up private lives uh, where they were lonely, uh, they had addictions, they caused heartbreak with their family or loved ones. But hey, they made a movie that made $200 million. So this film, I guess, is looking at John Lennon from the reverse situation. He didn't find success. He's like almost that fifth Beatle, that drummer who Ringo Starr replaced. But he's found happiness in another way and knows nothing else. So that's the charitable interpretation of that scene, that you don't have to find success as a Beatle to be happy. I think that's very well put and very thoughtful of you. And yes, I think it's that's very kind to John Lennon, kind to failed creatives out there. But I also wonder, would it have, would it have been more interesting if he went to visit John Lennon and John Lennon was like a, I don't know, some sort of slovenly, vaguely racist shitbird who's kicking around Liverpool, who had, you know, uh, spent 40 years toiling away in a blue-collar job and hated his life. It just seems too nice. Like, the whole thing just seems too reverential and too friendly and too, I don't know. Uh, I just I just thought the whole scene was gross. Like, you know, when he's like, thank you. He doesn't even know what he's thanking him for. I don't know. It just... Also... Just to quickly pivot while I just point out the other thing I hated in this movie, Kate McKinnon's performance. Kate McKinnon? Kate McKinnon? Oh, okay. Is that her name? Yes, from oh, God, she's- Saturday Night Live. 
I, I've seen stuff she's in and she's fantastic in it. She's obviously, she's an incredibly talented comedian and mimic and performer. Oh, but God, she just, she's got, everything is just dialed to 11. It's just like watching an anthropomorphized can of ham on screen. Like, just horrible, horrible acting. Not since she did the Australian accent in, what was that movie she did the Australian accent in? That Bridesmaids with Murder movie. Oh, uh, yeah. I know the one you've- With Scarlett Johansson. Oh. Yep. That, I mean, that was a war crime. We should have- Rough Night. Rough Night. That's the one. But uh, she's, just, she's just terrible in this. Just terrible. And really, and it might be the writing, but so cartoony in this sort of money-driven manager-agent role. Just awful. Just awful. Yeah. I actually complimented Danny Boyle before on great casting, but in this case- she was either cast badly or directed badly. Um, she gives a caricature like she's doing Saturday Night Live. It's not a performance. It's it's also a degree of comedy which is at 11, like you say. I don't understand this whole love for Kate McKinnon. I'm sorry. She can be great, but she's not suited to this film, which has got a high concept but is grounded in its execution. Yeah, I mean, Ed Sheeran is- very naturalistic, and he's not even an actor. He's great. He's great. I mean, maybe he's under, maybe he's underplaying it to the point of like he's just not an actor, but he's believable playing Ed Sheeran. But yeah, I mean, you know, it's interesting because I remember watching the Ghostbusters movie, which I had no problem with. Fine, whatever. But she does this thing. Kate McKinnon does this thing where basically she just imbalances every scene with this huge hammy performances, and it sort of just. It might feel like it's servicing her character or something, but it just wrecks the scenes, you know, because it just feels like they're in other movies. And even in a very ridiculous movie like Ghostbusters, she's just doing all of this mugging that, I don't know, it just just felt like if you were the other actors, you'd be like, Christ, would, would she just stop? Like, this is damaging the, in the service of the scene, she's damaging the movie. Yeah, I agree. Uh, you know, you could actually argue, and this is pretty harsh, it is a selfish form of acting because rather than reacting to the tone set by the majority of other actors in the scene, you're doing your own shtick in a different world. And they say that the best actors aren't just delivering a performance, the delivery side, they're responding and reacting. It's a acting conversation with the other actor. So if you've got, say, four other actors acting at a certain level in terms of naturalism, she should be working with that unless the character's meant to be, you know, so bizarre and crazy that they're in their own world, which occasionally her characters are. But generally, her characters aren't outsiders. They're part of the team. And it just doesn't work in this film at all. I, I, and I do like the spirit of her and her wackiness, as I said, in other, other contexts. But, yeah, not in this film at all. It's very odd to see her acting against Jack here because it's just – Two different levels of realism that just aren't in Sepatico. Yeah, that's right. And look, just so people don't think we're being really unfair to Kate McKinnon, I thought she was quite good in Bombshell where she was underplaying stuff. I thought she was pretty good in that one where it's like a spy movie, The Spy Who Dumped Me. You know, she's not underplaying stuff in that. But, but you know, there are movies that use her talents well. This is not one of them. 100%. All right, let's jump on, shall we? Let's jump to our review of Blinded by the Light. So, Gabe, walk me through it. Did you enjoy it? Um, I did. I found this film quite interesting, though. Like, I mean, how do you... Okay, so weirdly, 
I really like the setting. I like the characters. Weirdly, the thing that worked the least well for me was some of the use of Springsteen's music. I agree. It's bizarre. There wasn't as much of it as I thought, and the way it was used wasn't as effective as what it could have been. I thought this would be a slam dunk. I thought this is the director of Bend It Like Beckham, who's got a pretty interesting filmography and has used music very well in the past. She as well is of South Asian heritage, so there's an element of very much empathising with the challenges of this character, given her age and her cultural background. And I just thought this would be a wonderful way to tell an interesting coming-of-age story with music that has shaped the coming of age of many people. And it was used sparingly, and that might have been a cost issue, but also not the choices of music I would have expected in particular scenes. Like, there was an opportunity to use many more montages, and that's what Brisk Springs in music can very much invoke. And, yeah, it just felt like a lost opportunity. It's interesting you thought there wasn't enough or there wasn't much, because I, I thought there was quite a lot. Um, but... I think the setting of England in 1987, Thatcherism, them being like a a Pakistani family having to deal with the racism, all of that was really interesting. But, you know, when they suddenly broke out into Born to Run, the characters play it on a school PA, but then they sort of run across the city singing it. I don't know. It was kind of embarrassing. Like, as a sequence, it just sort of didn't work. And it did that weird thing where it sort of touches on the idea of a kind of magical realism. You know, they run past kind of like striking coal miners or whatever who sort of sing along a bit. But it never really commits to the idea of that sort of magical realism. Like, it's, it's obviously not a musical where people will break into song and dance. So... I guess I was just a bit like unsure of like what are the what are the rules here? Like all we hear is the song over the scene. We don't hear the characters actually singing it. Uh, I just I guess it just felt like it hadn't really fully committed to the idea of what it was. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I agree. We've often talked about in our reviews when a film does something, it's often that rule of threes, isn't it? Like commit to something. And if you have just say a odd instance, it just stands out like a sore thumb. And in this case, there was that magical realism montage when they were singing that. But that was, I think, the only one in the entire film, wasn't it? Like it wasn't a film defined by that or set up by that. No, and it doesn't even go all the way into magical realism. It kind of scratches on the side of it, you know, it doesn't, really commit to the idea of doing it. It's it's also interesting them having chosen Springsteen's music because I guess you could go either way with this and I'm still kind of unsure how I feel about it. His music is obviously awesome, but I wonder why they went for an American, such a quintessentially American artist in a film set in England. Maybe it's either a very interesting juxtaposition or a weird fit. And I guess I don't really know where I stand on that yet. I don't know. Do you have an opinion? Well, the reason they went for that is because that was the actual experience of the character. So, it's steeped in truth. Yeah, but I don't really care about that. <laughs> like, <laughs> No, I, I agree. So, I actually agree with you. An interesting juxtaposition can make something seem new and fresh again. It's like 8 Mile with Eminem. Like, he's an artist who was influenced by black American gangster music. And he came from a kind of trailer park, impoverished situation. He was the minority in his world, which is a reverse situation ordinarily where it's the black American character who is poverty-stricken and experienced prejudice in a 
middle-class white world. So it turned, it turned the tables there. And, you know, he was then trying to learn the craft from a different cultural sector. This film is the same in a sense. I actually thought at some on some occasions the juxtaposition wasn't strong enough. Now, I know that sounds odd, right? Like this is a South Asian, working-class, British family juxtaposed with the boss, Bruce Springsteen. I mean, arguably or objectively, that's very different. But maybe because they didn't lean into the intersection of that music and culture enough, I didn't feel it jump out enough. We only had a few scenes where his family approved of his music. What they mainly disapproved of was his lifestyle, like in terms of being a writer. And maybe that was the problem, is that they didn't see him dancing and singing enough this music. So he wasn't disapproved for that reason. What do you think? Oh, that's interesting. So you're saying that if he had, say, wanted to be a singer who was inspired by the music of Bruce Springsteen and was trying to do that genre himself and his parents had always wanted him to play the music from back home, in inverted commas, that would be a stronger push and pull between what they want and what he wants. But because... Like you say, he just wants to be a writer and the music sort of fuels that idea. All the the objection from them is not to, yeah, okay, I see what you're saying. Yeah, that's that's a very good point. Those two things don't really seem like they have much to do with each other, except the music just sort of fuels his desire to write poetry. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's good. Yeah, the music isn't disapproved of. Like if you look at, say, classic films like, but all those films where basically the parents disapprove of, you know, the sexy dancing of Elvis Presley or the gangster rap that Kids in the Burbs are listening to or whatever it might be, that's the point, is that parents disapprove with the influence. Yeah, in Footloose, in Footloose they want them to stop dancing. They don't want them to stop writing poetry while also dancing. <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah. And so maybe it's just not streamlined enough. And this is the point that had they approached this as an adaptation of a true story – or had they had this idea as an original idea from the start, I suspect they would have kind of streamlined this down and sort of made it like a clearer, simpler hurdle so that all the tension was around the different thing, which in this case is the music by the boss. The other element too, I should add, we talked about magic realism and to give our listeners a bit of context for that, we're talking about moments which are almost dreamlike. And if anyone's seen Rocket Man, that actually has a lot of those. Whereas a biography of another musician, Bohemian Rhapsody, was much more naturalistic in its take. So in Rocket Man, there were scenes where you'd see him as a kid and everything is just mythical and magical and Times blend and clothes change and so on. That's an example of magical realism where it's not quite crazy enough to be a dream, but it's definitely not natural. And this film here, there were those windows where potentially, a bit like Moulin Rouge as well by Baz Luhrmann, they could have just sort of like had a scene with a song where essentially the world around him changes to reflect what he's feeling on the inside as he listens to the music, whereas it is, you just sort of see him basically in his room with headphones on, just dancing a lot, and that's kind of it. Yeah, I did like the scene when he goes to the dance and everyone else is dancing to, like, traditional music, but he's listening to a Springsteen song. I thought that was an interesting juxtaposition and actually- That was great. Felt quite grounded in the reality of the setting. I, I really thought, oh, this- Kind of in a way, like, this is what the movie should have been, I guess. Yeah, I agree. If you're going to make something the soundtrack of your life, 
That's great because basically it has them all dancing on the outside to music that makes them happy and inspires them. But he's got a Walkman on and he's listening to his music. What he does is he he identifies with them because even though they're both listening to different music, he and his sister, they're both still inspired and he can then thus empathise with difference. It's like whatever gets you through. This gets me through, that music gets you through, but either way, we're inspired by something in our earbuds. Mm. So I reckon we should jump to, you know, similarities, coincidence or ripoff. Was there anything between these two films besides the cultural heritage of the actors that you think was either a coincidence or ripoff? Well, I mean, I guess both movies have extreme reverence for the musical artists in which they are wallpapering the soundtracks to their movies. <laughs> so there's that. But I mean, I guess, like we said earlier, they're, they're kind of similar but very different. I think Blinded by the Light does a much better job of the sort of race and class difficulties because it's set at a time i mean you could argue yesterday is also set at a time where those things are uh, are very much at the fore but blind by the light in that thatcher era whereas i suppose yesterday doesn't really do much of that comparatively i think that's a big one that stands out for me how about plot holes or missed opportunities could the filmmakers have done better with the high concept like i've already discussed potentially what wasn't explored yesterday How about the racial side? Like, Jack doesn't seem to experience any racism that is a significant part of the narrative. Part of me thinks that's good in the sense that the film is colourblind, but part of me thinks, hmm, should that be part of the story if you're going to cast an Indian-British man playing the music of the Beatles. Was that a missed opportunity, do you think? Well, do you think a would a British Indian man be able to become at one point I think Kate McKinnon's character says the biggest artist in the world of all time, you know, or would there actually be the sort of barriers that exist that would allow him maybe to become a successful but, you know, Middle middle of the pack. I mean, like, for instance, would, would there be a scene where the um, A&R people or the record execs say, hey, we really love these songs, but would prefer if Ed Sheeran recorded them? Exactly. In fact, that's a great example because I'm pretty sure that your mate Ed, he has written for so many artists, but he doesn't have the look of Justin Bieber. And that apparently in his history is one of the reasons why he didn't actually get to sing his songs earlier from the start because they couldn't package him, they couldn't promote him like Taylor Swift, like Justin Bieber, as the attractive singer. And Lady Gaga had the same issues. She was teased about her nose. Madonna was teased when she was younger as well. These people aren't ugly. These people are attractive, but they're not the stunning, attractive types that record labels have traditionally cast in boy bands. And it would seem there's an opportunity, and this might have been too on the nose. I'm just teasing this out as a potentially... Missed opportunity, a potential missed opportunity to say, well, he's trying to get off, play music at the start. Uh, the The reality of life is that record executives aren't colorblind. And if he was discriminated at the start of the film until he discovers the Beatles' music, but the Beatles' music transcends that look. And then, as you say, perhaps they want to take that music without his face and actually have him writing for someone like a Justin Bieber type character. And then he says, no, 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 this is me. There's a story there that I think would reflect many artists like 
Lady Gaga, but complicate it with the fact that it takes the most famous music in our timeline of all time to transcend the racism of a few white executives. That may have been torn the nose, but I'm surprised it didn't come up at all. Well, yeah, I mean, who's the most famous, you know, even if you, uh, even if you expand it to sort of um, Indian Americans, not American Indians, Indian Americans, uh, like Nora Jones, surely there is like sort of some sort of systemic barriers that are preventing, you know, brown people from becoming the most, one of the most. So, yeah, I, I agree. It would have been maybe nice to just, I don't know, touch on that a little bit or it, may, it might have been interesting. Maybe they wrote the thing with no with no ethnicity in mind for the lead and then just Heimish auditioned or whatever and they went, that's the guy, let's do it, but not change the script at all except to change the ethnicity of his parents to match him. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, good point. All right, let's jump to some trivia. Let's start with uh, behind the scenes. So did you know that Himish Patel did all of his own singing and playing in the music? Ah, really? It's pretty good. Yeah, he's really good, isn't he? Um, and screenwriter Richard Curtis asked Paul McCartney for his approval for the title of the film. And Sir Paul gave his blessing, but also suggested they call it Scrambled Eggs instead. Right. Um, I was quite surprised Sir Paul McCartney didn't make a cameo somewhere. They tease him and Ringo at one point in a dream sequence when Jack Malik is on. What's that? Oh, fuck, he's a tool. Oh, James Corden on James Corden's uh, show. <laughs> Sorry to James Corden fans out there. And they're like, here they are, two blokes from Liverpool. It's Paul McCartney, Ringo Starr, and they cut to their feet. And it's just such a mistake to do that because it really sets up the expectation that they're going to be in it and then they're not, which I thought was a terrible tease. Yeah, I agree. Hey, interestingly, um, much earlier you talked about this film yesterday being based on a script that was originally written by Jack Barth and Mackenzie Crook from The Office. Jack Barth is credited with a story credit, but Mackenzie's not. I wonder I wonder how that happened. Is Mackenzie the one who was the quite skinny guy with the blonde bold cut that Ricky Gervais teased? Uh yeah, he was sort of um Gareth. He was David Brent's sort of offsider, but he was kind of sort of a psycho. Or like misplaced uh yes. Rain Wilson played him in the remake, or played that character in the American remake. Very interesting for two writers who ostensibly were writing together for then have only one of them get a story credit. Yeah, yeah. May- I mean, maybe maybe Mackenzie did a lot less or something. Anyway, I just thought I just thought that was curious and worth mentioning as a little follow-up to your piece of trivia in that intro back there. Anyway, yeah, a- as we were. Apparently, it was actually much darker in tone, the one that Jack Barth- I, th- I think Jack Barth had the story originally and then br- brought on Mackenzie after that, which might explain it. But apparently, his one was much darker in tone and actually had the main character struggling as a musician in the new timeline. And the premise of the alternative timeline was explored in more depth. So, when Curtis did a rewrite, he made it much more lighthearted and put less emphasis on the premise of a new timeline without the Beatles and more focus on the romance between Jack and Ellie. So that's what Curtis brought to it. Yeah, and that's unsurprising, right? He's Mr. Romantic Comedy, so... Exactly. The other interesting thing is that you'd think that it'd be really quite difficult to license all the music for the Beatles. They actually licensed 20 tracks, but only used 17 in the final cut. But apparently it was quite straightforward because they don't actually play the recorded music. He plays it, which makes it a lot easier to get the rights. Yeah, right. Uh, Do the Beatles not license their 
music very much. I just think it's a case that's just very expensive. Oh yeah, and very difficult. I mean, I'm sure it'd be ridiculously expensive. Yeah, and for an indie film like this, which isn't a one million dollar film, but certainly doesn't have the budget of Avengers Endgame, every dollar counts. And I guess because the film innately has the setup that Jack is singing the songs, then it doesn't feel like it's a cop out because you know. That's just the story itself that's baked in. So, yeah, interesting. One last bit of trivia. The owner of the recording studio, Gavin, has the same haircut as the Beatles. <laughs> wow. I'm, I am going to re-watch this movie just for that. Well, look out, Gavin. Here we come. Um, actually, just one thing. Being a big Danny Boyle fan, I'll give you a, actually a last piece of trivia. Given how many genres he's explored, it's the only film of his to not be rated R in the US. The first one was Millions from 2004. So you're saying it's the only one since 2004 that has not been rated R in the US? No, it's the only one full stop. So there's been two. Millions and this one weren't rated R in the US. Oh, I see. Every other film he's done has been stronger in content. Well, good. Yeah. Millions is his other not great movie, so stick to the R ratings, mate. Exactly. You've got a higher chance of success there. There isn't much news to speak of in relation to trivia for Blinded by the Light. It's much more low-key. It obviously comes from the song by Springsteen called Blinded by the Light that was made famous by the Manfred Mann's Earth Band, and it was inspired by the life of journalists Severaz Manzor and his love of the works of Bruce Springsteen. So that's pretty much all I could find online about the making of of Blinded by the Light. I mean, the boss is quite selective about what music turns up in things. So he must have been quite quite pleased or taken by the idea that this whole thing is set around his music. Yeah, I would have thought so. I mean, it's very much a heartfelt film. I'm sure the boss would like the idea that he was touching the lives of many people that were very, very different from him in very different countries from his. I guess it goes to show that he's this guy who he thought was probably appealing to working class white guys in Midwest America, and he's touching an audience he probably never anticipated, which is pretty cool. Yeah, the boss rules. Now- There aren't many casting woulda, shoulda, couldas, but we should play Spot the Aussie. Were there any any Aussies in either of these two films? Ah. I don't think so. Were there? I didn't. I certainly don't remember being like, oh, there he is, the Australian. No. Okay. No. No. All right. Was he going to say no? We're going to say no and we're going to move on. Okay. Okay. So let's jump to the box office. Which movie was the box office champ? Have a guess. I'm going to go with The Beatles just because boomers like to go to the movies and boomers like The Beatles. Okay. So. I mean, boomers like the boss too. They do. <laughs> Yesterday had a budget of 26 million US dollars. It did 73 million at the US box office, 80 million internationally for a grand total of $153 million. From a budget of 26. Not bad. Pretty, pretty, pretty good. Pretty good. In contrast, Blinded by the Light had a very small budget. I couldn't find it easily online, but it did 11, 12 million in the US, plus only six internationally for a total of 18 million. IMDb says 15 mil budget estimated, but yeah. I mean, who knows? That could be any old punter putting that up. So 18 million total box office versus 126. Right. I guess the combination of Richard Curtis and The Beatles is popular. All right, let's jump to if that hindered or helped with the critical acclaim. Yesterday, have a guess. 
Yesterday versus Blinded by the Light. I'm, I'm going to say probably a dead heat. Both of these movies reviewed reasonably well. Okay. On the tomato meter for critics, Yesterday has 63% and Blinded has 89%. Wow. Okay. With fans, Yesterday has 89% and Blinded has 91%. Uh, with the fans. So the fans pipped them by two percentage points, but unfortunately... There were enough fans to, you know, slap some cash down at the box office. All right, let's go to the awards. Here we are, award time, baby. So let's start with best title, Yesterday versus Blinded by the Light. Both of these titles are fine. <laughs> I don't know. Neither, neither, neither pops. Neither pops off. Like, wow, what a title. What a title, Ben. But both seem okay. Now, this should be obvious, but for some fans who don't follow the Beatles or... Bruce Springsteen, they're both named after songs. I like comparatively Blinded by the Light because it probably speaks to the themes of that particular film in a sense that he was sort of- What light is he? Is he blinded by the light that is crushing whiteness surrounding him? I don't- What is the light? He's inspired by the music of the boss. Oh, okay. I wouldn't say he's blinded, but it's the light is so bright of the boss that it inspires him to become a writer. Right. Maybe they wanted to call it Born to Run, just to lay it on real thick. But then Bruce said, no, you can't call it after my most famous song. Yeah, I agree with that. All right. It goes to, I'm going to give it to, by default, Blinded. Fair. All right, best poster. Let me describe it quickly for our podcast listeners. Yesterday has a poster. It's a very bright, colourful poster with the characters. Uh, I'm not sure what the effect is you'd call it. It's basically like every colour is amplified in a kind of simplistic fashion in shades of yellow, green, red and blue, like a extreme Polaroid photograph with both actors facing to the viewer. And Blind by the Light, basically, there's various posters, but essentially has the characters jumping in the air with great excitement as if they're inspired by the music. They're not great posters, but I'm going to give it to Yesterday. Gabe. Interestingly, a few of the other Blinded by the Light posters sort of seem to be recreating the Born to Run album artwork. So at least that's evocative of something uh, related to the artist, you know, that the movie's about. I, I guess I don't know enough about the Beatles. If, is that solarizing effect something to do with them? Or is it just like, ooh, psychedelic? The Beatles were psychedelic at one point. I don't really like either of these posters. So, yeah, just give it to who you want, mate. Just give it to who you want. I don't care. Just just, just give it to who you want. All right, Danny Boyle. There's a little trophy for the poster for yesterday coming your way. It's in the mail. All right, the Bill Fleck Big Break Award, named after Billy Bob and Ben Affleck. So, who got their big break with these twin movies, do you think? Well, after almost 600 episodes of whatever Soapy was on, I'm going to give it to Hamish Patel. <laughs> Yeah, I've actually never watched that soap. So he was a new face to me, but he was pretty established on TV beforehand. EastEnders. Yeah, okay. I would say that the actor who's the lead of Blinded by the Light probably nailed it. I can't find his name right now as I'm looking quickly, but it's a big break for him. And I think he was really good in the role. So I'm going to say, who, let me just. His name, I think it's Viv, Viv, Vivek. Calora? Yeah. I'm sorry. Yep, that's him. If I've just found her. If I've mispronounced his name, my apologies. Yeah. I thought Vivek Kara was fantastic. So I'm gonna give it to him. Alright, I'm gonna give it to Hamish. Okay. Moving on. The Before They Were Famous Award or the Blink and You'll Miss Them. Anyone in these films that has I mean, they're pretty recent films, so it's hard to <laughs> Yeah, in the last year. Yeah. Blown up. 
Well, apparently Anna de Armas, is that her name? Is in Yesterday, uncredited in some role as Roxanne. I can't actually remember where she turns up. Who's she? Who's Anna de Armas? Yeah. She's in Knives Out. She's the housekeeper in Knives Out. Or no, the- Oh, the main star. The nurse, the nurse, whatever she is. Yeah, and she's in Blade yeah. Runner 2049. So, she's uncredited in Yesterday. Wow. Maybe she was cut out in the edit. I'm not sure. Maybe she just turns up in like one shot in a... Anyway, I, for the life of me, I can't remember. Someone write in and tell me where I missed it. And it gets that. Yeah. All right. Yeah, let us know in the mailbag. Okay, let's go to the Tommy Lee Jones Show Stiller Award. Who stole the show despite being in a small or poorly written role? All right. For me, Joel Fry playing Rocky in Yesterday. He's sort of like uh, Buddy and uh, Rhodey. I thought was very charismatic and funny. So, I thought he was fantastic, but to me, he was exactly the same character as the guy with the blonde straggly hair who's the flatmate of Hugh Grant in Notting Hill. Yeah, that's fine. I think just he did it well. (laughs) He did it really well. And how about Blinded by the Light? I thought his frame was really good in that film too. Yeah, actually, that's in both films, why don't we call it a draw between the, the best pals? The pals win it. Okay. Jumping to the Dustin Diamond Award, named after the actor who didn't kick on after starring in Saved by the Bell, who hasn't made the most of their opportunities so far, as recent as these films are? Um, oh, this, I mean, this is a bit of a tough one, isn't it? Yeah, let's just see. Like, give them give a year. <laughs> That's right. It does seem a little bit harsh, doesn't it? Like, give them a chance. Yeah, I think we'll just have to see where Vivek Kaira ends up with his career, but he's... I would hope that he maximises the opportunity from Blinded by the Light and kicks on because I thought he was very good. But let's keep that one as a watch this space. The Winner Winner Chicken Dinner Award, who came out on top and was at their career high? Let's start with Yesterday. I'd say it must be pretty close to a career high, at least for a theatrically released film for the lead, Himish Patel, right? Yeah, again, for both, I think. Yeah. This is probably, at the moment, the top of the ziggurat of their current careers and let's hope they can climb higher but they're certainly sitting pretty right now. All right, we'll call it a draw then. Okay, have a Best Dialogue Award. Any favourite quotes? I mean, these films aren't really quotable movies, but does anything jump out to you? I've got one that you'll love. Okay, hit me with... Is it from John, John Lennon? John Lennon. Fuck. <laughs> yes. John Lennon's quote in the film is, You want a good life? It's not complicated. Tell the girl you love that you love her and tell the truth to everyone whenever you can. Ah, how pat is that, guy? What a load of jerk-off garbage. Uh, right now, making that classic jerk-off hand motion, because that is jerk-off bullshit. I mean, honestly, just this seems like a good opportunity to lay out this rant. He is the most prolific and famous singer of all time who's ostensibly written these songs himself. Fuck, mate, just lie. Just fucking cash in and lie. No one will ever know. Don't trade it all away on this pat, tell-the-truth-all-the-time bullshit. Listen, listeners. If one day you wake up and the Beatles never exist and you write their songs, just fucking own it, you know? You'll still get the girl. Just You, you had the girl anyway and she'd have billions of dollars. Instead, you want to live some podunk pissant life? No way, mate. What a dumb thing. Also, when he actually says these songs were written by this other group of guys, we never get the sense if those guys were actually alive. Like, he went and met John Lennon. But is Ringo out there going, Oh, holy shit, I wrote a song. I wrote a song. Oh, Ringo. Or how the fucking Ringo sounds. No, ridiculous. Actually, this could be our sequel we'll discuss later on. Could that be the film where you try and track down all four of them? Or just- We'll get to that. We'll get to that. 
I got one line from Blinded by the Light that I like. Which one? When he's like, who's that? The boss. Who's boss? The boss of us all. Yeah, that's good, that one. <laughs> also, since the future. <laughs> since the future. Yeah. I, did, I did like some of that 90, late 80s, you know, he's, the, the kid who plays his best mate with that terrible hair. I thought that was all quite funny. Yeah, that was fantastic. I really, I love both those lines as well. So, I'm going to give it to Blinded by the Light. And it turns out since were the future, so prescient. There you go. Daft Punk agree. All right. How about the Nicolas Cage Chewing the Scenery Award? Let's start with yesterday. I think we know who this goes to, as we've already talked about how horribly they chew the scenery. Did anyone chew the scenery well, I suppose? Well, Kate McKinna didn't. No. How about in Blinded? They were pretty good, weren't they? Yeah, I didn't actually think there was much scenery chewing. I mean, you know, stock bully characters turn up, but they're not really chewing the scenery. They're just sort of stock characters. Rob Brydon turns up. He's usually a good uh, candidate for scenery chewing yeah. as Matt's dad, but uh, he almost underplays it. <laughs> like, I know. He really does. God, I love Rob Brydon. So, Kate McKinnon, your award is waiting for you. She gets it. Okay. The Taking a Paycheck Award, which speaks for itself. Well, these films aren't big blockbusters, so I think everyone's just happy to be there. I don't think anyone was slumming it, so to speak, for a paycheck. What about you? No, it's not like they plugged in a DTV actor for a three-scene, two-day shoot role. Oh, who he is? It's Nicolas Cage as Ringo. So, missed opportunity. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> All right, uh, let's jump to the Stephen Toblowski Award. Hey, it's that guy. Named after the iconic supporting actor Stephen Tobolowski from Groundhog Day. Any uh, reactions, Gabe, as to a hey, it's that guy? Let's start with yesterday. Yesterday. I mean, hey, it's that guy, Ed Sheeran. <laughs> oh, I recognise him from music. <laughs> You've also got to say, though, Robert Carlyle playing John Lennon, right? But you wouldn't know it was – I mean, he's not credited and he's wearing a fair whack of makeup. Did you know it was – Robert Carlyle? Yeah, I could see. I mean, you know, I looked at him and thought, is that Begbie? Is that Begbie from Train Spotting? So I could recognize him. Right, okay. But, you know, that's it is he's not as obvious as he's not playing himself and he's wearing makeup accordingly. Anyone else in yesterday? No, I mean he would be the the contender. And I suppose then the contender in Blinded by the Light for me would be Rob Brydon. Oh, check I love when Rob Brydon turns up. Yeah. Stuff. All right, I think Rob gets it. Oh, yes. Yes. He gets it. Rob. Hold on, Rob. Rob. All right, the Delroy Lindo Award for great actors who aren't cast often enough. Let's start with yesterday. Well, Were there any- who do you – I mean, I guess they don't have any of that kind of like old guard actors. So, I mean, I know I'd like to see more of Joel Fry, who played Rocky from Yesterday in stuff. You know, cast him more. I don't know if he's not cast enough, but I would say cast him more. Yeah, I actually thought both leads were great. So, I'd happily see more of Himish Patel and Lily James. I didn't think Lily James was great in Baby Driver, but I really thought she was good here. So I guess the leads, and when it comes to Blinded by the Light, I recognise the lead, the dad. I think he's from the Kumars. He's been around for a long time. Calvinda Gurr. I thought he was good. Yeah, I mean, he was in Bendit Like Beckham. Ah, that's right. Okay, that's where I've seen him before. Okay, he's great. He was fantastic. He should be in more. Yeah, okay, let's give it to him. Done. Calvinda, it's yours. All right. The Members Reigns Award, inspired by the absurdly named character played by Nick Cage in Gone in 60 Seconds. Who steals the cake for the most ludicrous name? Ringo Starr. Yeah, there weren't really any crazy names in this one, were there? Like, no one really had any names that just seemed like screenwriting cliches. So, I'm going to say it's a draw. 
How about you? Yeah, give it to Ringo doesn't even appear. All right. Give it to no one. The Memento Award. The moments you completely forgot about until you saw that rewatch these movies. <laughs> we both watched them for the first time, so not applicable. Moving on. Yeah. NA. The Die Hard Award. Will this film, do you think, inspire a subgenre of these types of movies or are these just anomalies and unique products of the time? Have there been other movies like these before? I don't think so, no. I mean, it does feel like it's the sort of idea that could be reappropriated to other worlds. For example, someone wakes up and they discover that Apple doesn't exist. And so they then find an engineer and basically become the Steve Jobs character to design Apple products. Like, that does feel like a bit of a fantasy that people have. It's that whole classic idea of, oh, I wish I was around 30 years ago, like Marty McFly in Back to the Future, when he stole the sporting almanac to make bets. I wish I had an idea that I could basically appropriate back in the future. But I can't really think of anything more than just that simple idea of time travel films where they want to profit when they go back to the present. No, I agree. And maybe they're just not coming to this in this moment. So, yeah, I mean, if anyone can think of any. But, yeah, no. And also, I guess, movies about music like these are. I mean, there's been movies where bands have done a lot of the score, you know, uh, Arcade Fire doing Her or Johnny Greenwood doing There Will Be Blood, but they're just the score. It's not like someone (laughs) wakes up in... (laughs) <laughs> there will be blood and hums along to the Johnny Greenwood music. So these they feel like interesting twin movies because they don't feel like there's other movies like them and they both came out in the same year, right? Yeah, entirely. Yeah, they're unique in that sense. All right, it's time to jump to that part of the podcast, the Milking the Speed Cow Dry Ward, named after the infamous sequel Speed. So imagine this. Let's say there's an opportunity to make a sequel to Yesterday – or Blinded by the Light. They're both about a young, creative British man of South Asian heritage who discovers success through iconic music. In the case of yesterday, he discovers the Beatles' music and no one else in the world knows about the Beatles' music. And in Blinded by the Light, the character is inspired by the sensational music of the boss, Bruce Springsteen. So, which film do we make a sequel to? And what's our pitch to make it? Well, okay, so where do both of these movies end? Blinded by the Light ends with the characters driving off to live their best lives inspired by the music of the boss in 1987. Yesterday ends with the character having given away uh, or or told the truth about having uh, appropriated the lyrics of the Beatles but coming to terms with that and his new true love. So both of them are kind of open-ended. Right? They could, you know, blinded by the light, he can go and do stuff. And yesterday he could keep singing. But which one lends itself better to, to what happens next? And to overlay it with the key detail, which one made more cash at the box office? Yeah, but we're, we're, we're artists first. We're not hack sellouts, or are we? Well, an executive producer from a big studio has come to us and said, Yesterday, on a budget of $26 million, made $153.5 million around the world. Blinded by the Light, with a budget of around $15 million, made $18 million. Guys, we're thinking we want a sequel to Yesterday. Twist our thumb. Do we do that? Okay. The other thing that Yesterday has is the whole alternate universe conceit. So we could... 
we could keep bashing Hamish Patel over the head and he could continually wake up. Oh, I live in a world where toilet paper doesn't exist. Topical. Uh, oh, I live in a world where Gutenberg never invented the Bible printing press. Oh, I invented paper. You know, whereas Blinded by the Light doesn't have a conceit like that. I agree. I think yesterday is innately ripe for umpteen sequels. Yeah, yeah. Essentially, you could even trade out the main cast and basically have another musician in another country, maybe a a female lead this time, who wakes up one day and discovers that no one has heard of the music of Madonna. Yeah, that's right. In fact, you could just you could just pump these out as DTV, you know, one after the other. Oh, Madonna, Elton John, Elvis Presley, Mariah Carey, ah, oh, Stevie Wonder, what? You know, um, and just have people. Uh, what are the ramifications of living in a world where Janet Jackson never existed, and so on? Actually, you you know what I love? What if we went for the angle where it's someone, a, an artist? Let's just say a rap musician, right? A rapper discovers that no one has heard of the music of Madonna, but Madonna isn't the sort of music that he'd naturally play. So the tension is, does he try and profit off the music of Madonna as his own, as is, or does he infuse it with his own voice, and maybe that's the story. But but he realised an opportunity to basically do Madonna music with a male voice instead, and then no one's really responding to it because it's not like the zeitgeist of the time in the 80s when Madonna became famous. So he starts infusing it with a bit of rap. Yeah, Ben, I think Like a Virgin has a very different connotation when it's sung by a dude. <laughs> You know, um, and maybe that's a co- that's the comedy. It's like a a, a comedy about a, a guy. Yeah, he has these gifts, but the problem is, well, these songs are, are just all wrong for him. Um, wouldn't wouldn't you just produce though? Like, what about if someone woke up in a, an era where like Elvis and um, Led Zeppelin and so on hadn't all like appropriated the black sound and black people had owned all rock and roll. You know, is there other ways you could go? How about we go for a dramedy? So we stay on point with yesterday. Okay. A bit of comedy, a bit of drama. Okay. So we stay in the same genre. Okay. But I like the idea you just mentioned. What if, for example, if we go with the combination of what I said earlier, which is someone discovers the music which isn't a natural fit for their voice, their cultural heritage, their own interest, they start singing it verbatim as is, just like this young black kid from New York starts singing Like a Virgin, gets teased mercilessly and then realises that he has to start adapting it to his own voice, to his own story, change the lyrics, add some different beats to it, play with it or whatever. And only after he starts infusing it with his own literal voice and his own uh, stories and background does he find fame? And then the message is be yourself and you can still remix, rehash other great artists, but it has to come from the heart. Oh, I like it because it's got heart. And also I suppose that would exist in a world where, I don't know, who's inspired by Madonna? Uh, Katy Perry no longer exists. Oh, my God, Katy Perry and Russell Brand never got married. Where are they now? Oh, the possibilities. So, okay, if we go that way, what gender, age, background is our main character to juxtapose with 
a particularly famous artist. Um, Let's <laughs> wo- should we work with the artist first, or which way? Who are we pitching to? Are we pitching to Sony? We should probably get a list of Sony artists then. You know, genius idea. Yeah, genius idea. Don't want to pitch the wrong artist to. Uh... Let's say with a bit of uh, freedom in this regard. Okay. Uh, which artist we've got here? Bruce Springsteen in one film, and we talked about the Beatles and yesterday. We're doing a sequel to the Beatles, so. What would be an artist that would cut through but be very different? I would say Michael Jackson, but ooh. Yeah, that's a bit- uh, I'm not really sure. A bit spicy. Yeah. I think Michael's been cancelled. Although although, although you could actually then have the music of Michael Jackson without the alleged pedophilia. So, like, maybe in that way it creates a clean slate for everyone. Like, he could go and visit Michael, um, who's now a, you know- 65-year-old guy who- In jail. Well, I was going to say maybe it was the crushing pressure of fame and the relationship with Michael's father and so on that pushed him into being reclusive, that encouraged his particular proclivities and so on. I don't know, the nature, nurture, it's a whole other debate. But maybe he could go visit Michael and Michael's just like a happy-go-lucky guy, didn't have his problems with his dad. It's just him and his sisters having a nice time, just working a regular old job. And you can have Billie Jean then. So essentially- there's an opportunity for us to approach the rights holder for Michael Jackson's music and say, this is a way to make his music more palatable in the 2020s, given that it's somewhat been tarnished by his subsequent reputation in terms of the choice, the the terrible, awful choices he made in his private life. Oh, but Ben. This could basically be a chance to reinvent Michael Jackson. Maybe, but what also if, and this is dark, if the the Faustian bargain that has to be struck with this character and Michael Jackson's music is that you can have the music, but you also have to touch the children. <laughs> and would you take that? Would you take... 25 years of being the greatest pop artist of all time, but later, a few years before your death, yes, it turns out you were a pedophile. Okay, so this pitch has already gone off the rails. It's a, no, it's a Faustian. It's about. It's like Faust, man. If Faust was about music and kid diddling. The studio chief across the table is looking at us now saying, what the fuck are you talking about? I'm looking at you saying, Gabe, zip it, zip it, no, zip it. No, and then all I have to do is sing just a little bit of- you know, Billy Jean and bang, we're back, baby. Oh, it's back. If I had to twist your arm, I had to have a different inspiration behind besides Michael Jackson. Is there someone else? Okay. Madonna? Who else? Um, the Backstreet Boys. <laughs> okay. All right. So there is a pitch. It is a reinvention of the music of Michael Jackson as told by a – who's our main character? Well, he's got to be African American, right? You can't and female. Yeah, maybe for sure. Okay, okay. But you can't you can't have a white guy zoom in and do Michael Jackson, right? That's terrible. That's terrible. So then, how does it end? Let's wrap this up. We'll tie a bow on it and bring this pitch home. Um, well, surely it ends with him having to make a choice, and he 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 decides not to take the music and the children and instead <laughs> give it away for free. So he starts. Ah, <laughs> oh, this Ben. We have been. Oh, at least I have been escorted off the lot. <laughs> They've escorted me off the lot. How dare we turn up to Columbia Pictures, a subsidiary of Sony, who owns Michael Jackson's music or whatever, and pitch this idea. Mate, get off. I don't know if Sony actually owns that. So the final scene is someone like, let's just say we had, who do we cast? Zoe Kravitz? Zoe Kravitz yeah. has to choose, what, 
between. She ends up she ends up in a park, having given away all her money, all the opportunity to be famous, and is sitting there with Bubbles the monkey, feeding him a banana, <laughs> and reflecting on what could have been. Roll credits. Yeah, beautiful. It's it's the woodsman meets yesterday, and the title is. Um, I don't know what what are what are like famous Michael Jackson songs that, in retrospect, um, have a dark dark undercurrent. Oh, it's called Billie Jean, and she's Billie Jean. Oh, there you go, bang, bang. I'm sure after we deliver our first draft of this, we'll be immediately fired, um, and the script will be hastily rewritten to remove all of these elements. But you know, maybe we get that story by credit, and maybe one day on a podcast like this, someone will be like, "Hey, did you know that this script was originally much darker? Not unlike yesterday." What? And that, ladies and gentlemen, is how you make a sequel to the film Yesterday, now called Billy Jean. All right, Dave. That brings us to the end of the show. Where can listeners find more of your work and musings this week? Uh, Twitter at Gabe Dowrick. And I'm at Ben Phelps on Twitter and Instagram and youtube.com slash Ben Phelps. You can find all of my podcasts, including Twin Movies, in the usual places like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Thank you for listening, folks, as always. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you do enjoy it, please share it. That's the best way to promote us to people who might also enjoy a bit of Twin Movies action. Take care and stay tuned for another Twin Movies battle very soon. See you, Gabe. Thank you, Ben. I'll see you yesterday. Catch you later.